Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Non-Intuitive Bits, episode 53. I am your host, Zane Rizvi, and with me is Slava. Hello, hello, everyone. You probably have forgotten that we wouldn't exist. I, I, I would assume the surprise on the uh, iPhones of the people when they opening iTunes in the morning. Oh, new Non-Intuitive Bits. Whoa. Yeah, it's been so long. Like it, it feels almost like a foreign experience recording another podcast <laughs> and, and being a host. <laughs> That's actually true. That's actually true. Last podcast was August, so we now we complete end of August, so we miss September completely. So yeah, approximately almost two months, less than two months. And and before August, I think we had a big gap that time too. Yes. So like, for for being the host, it's been an even bigger gap than two months. <laughs> So like maybe a three month gap or something. Yeah, like a quarter like of a quarter. year has passed. <laughs> yes. Uh, by the way, I I actually met several folks who asked me where is the new podcast? Where are the new podcasts? Uh, yes. So I actually met our listeners, at least one. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. Like uh, once in a while, I like have a friend say, "Oh, hey, I heard your podcast." Hmm. I was like, "Wait, you, you? How did you find my podcast? Oh, it was I saw it on your site?" She's like, "Oh, okay, cool." <laughs> uh, but like, pe- people click links on sites. Who would have guessed? I'm going to say what uh, probably only the Zane will understand. But uh, I'm sorry, listeners. That's the public message that again only Zane will get. Um, approximately now, 30% of Deset is listening to us. Oh wow! Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> And you listeners have to guess what this means. Is it a lot? Is it not? <laughs> We're going to, to, to keep it a secret. You, you, you are doing really good on the on the spreading the word front. Oh, it's actually surprised to me. I actually didn't do anything. It's just, uh, oh, man, I don't want to hijack your, your show, uh, but I'm still going to say how I learned about that. And today, today was my farewell party. I'm leaving. I'm leaving the company, and obviously, people were asking questions, saying different things, and among them, people were coming saying, "Oh, actually, listening to your podcast." Like, whoa, that was quite interesting. That's a great farewell gift. <laughs> yes, I actually promoted among everyone. Like, says, here is the name. Go and listen to us. <laughs> now, now, dude, you, you're dropping like a pretty big bombshell on on folks over here. Uh, you want to talk a little bit more about that? If you're up for it, uh, no, I no, <laughs> because because the reason why I know that this podcast might uh, be out before I actually will transition to my new role, so I would uh, temporarily. Uh, do not do not share it. So two reasons. I don't want to hijack your show, and the second one uh, because there is a technical possibility it will go out today, and right. I don't want yet to announce it yet. <laughs> That's that you would be announcing it before you have signed any like this agreements to like not talk not blog and not talk about anything on social media. Um, I, I'm, I'm kidding. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> yes. 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 Um, sorry. Sorry for the emergency. Right. Back to back to no, you. No. 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 This, this is great. All right. So on to the regularly scheduled program. <laughs> So we, we, there's a lot that's been happening in these past two months, and it's hard to choose from things. Like you talk about Facebook being down, you talk about Instagram being down, or you talk about WhatsApp being down. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then like, uh, but you know, all, all, all the news stuff that's that's kind of kind of gotten 
a little bit older, but what is still more of a new news item is Python. There's a new version of Python that came out, Python 3.10. And longtime listeners may remember me saying that uh, I really don't care for Python, that I really prefer C Sharp. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> okay, please continue. <laughs> so, I, I don't care for Python too much as a language. I really prefer C Sharp. Large chunk of that is because of Visual Studio just makes it so much more pleasant to work with the language. But there are certain advantages that Python has that C Sharp doesn't have. Like, there's a community of people who are actually writing code for Python and making it open source and making it really easy to do stuff with Python. With C Sharp, you're kind of limited to whatever you can write on your own. And so because of that, I have been grudgingly forced to use Python for like a growing number of my side projects. Uh, and so it actually caught my eye when I like, and also PyCharm as an IDE is way more pleasant to use than basic Visual Studio I've been <laughs> learning. And even Visual Studio's IntelliSense for Python has suddenly taken a huge upgrade. Uh, I think it was just like a few weeks ago, or I, I discovered it a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. I don't know how recent this part was, but it actually has pretty decent IntelliSense and built into Visual Studio now. And PyCharm IntelliSense is even better. So Python is getting less painful to use. And now there's Python 3.10 available. Python 3.10, you mean? Three, three, Python 3.10, yes. Python 3 would not be that big of a news. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Python 3.10. And it has like, uh, I was looking at the different features. Like actually Slava and I were trying to see what features were on here. Just like, just before we started the show. Because mm -hmm. like neither of us had any idea what was in Python 3.10. And funnily enough, like, one of the first things that like some folks like are emphasizing is that it has better, better error messages. <laughs> you finally don't want to shoot yourself in the leg when you have the wrong ident. Right. Or like, oh, hey, you, you know where your error actually is, not like five lines uh, down the row. Yeah, that's that's like that. That was. For, for new developers, that was insanity. Yeah, I, I had like literally had times where I wanted to just throw my computer out the window, like that famous GIF, and uh, it would have felt really, really satisfying. Yep, yep, yep. I hear you. I hear you. Yes. Except I was a poor college student and I couldn't afford a new computer. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Are, are US college uh, not supposed to give you a new computer? Or you have to buy it yourself. Oh, no, no, no. It was like completely like your own, out of your own pocket. Ooh. Okay. There, there's computers available. Like there's computer labs available where you can like use oh. a communal computer. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's there. But then you have to go all the way to the computer lab and like work over there, share your files on your own floppy uh, flash drive. Because uh, I don't think we had any dry network storage or if we did it was like tiny mm -hmm. uh and of course like, yeah yeah so just that was not a pleasant experience unless like you really really needed software that was not available on your own computer 
<laughs> or if you like were on campus because like i didn't have a laptop back then you know it's uh, it's almost exactly like ukraine with two exceptions in ukraine we neither have lap no mo- no money for own laptop otherwise <laughs> everything is the same <laughs> it used to be nowadays is better nowadays is better well uh oh well, one thing that they did have in my school was they would add the library would let you rent out a laptop and they had like two or three loaner laptops and you could rent them out for i think for like a day mm-hmm. which is like just enough to like if you had to give a demo like a demo in front of the class you'd have a laptop for giving the demo mm-hmm. it wasn't good for much more than that but at least like that was an option for uh, those who really really needed it Ah, I see, I see, I see, I see, I see, I see. Loner, a loner effectively. A loner laptop, yes. yes. Old, slow, and clunky, much worse than any other laptop the schools had or any of the computers <laughs> the schools would give you access to, but mobile. I see, yes, yes. So, now, back to Python. <laughs> uh, one of the things we were discussing as we were kind of looking through this, uh, what the features that Python has, is that this release of Python has support for structural pattern matching. Yes. And I was telling Slava that I have absolutely no idea what that means. Yes. Maybe so, Slava, would you uh, care to educate us? Yeah, so this is actually a powerful concept that coming to uh, different languages. If you, for example, came from something like Scala that initially was uh, functional, pattern matching is very popular, uh, very popular uh, pattern there. <laughs> Sorry for tautology tautology so it's saying again the same thing um so this i'm trying to figure out the best way to describe this because it's actually taking an object and figuring out the pattern to which it to which it matches so let's start with normal switch case because this is a usually the closest uh, syntactical object that looks alike but slightly different so you have a switch in normal language it's let's assume you can put a switch a string so imagine you have a switch string and then obviously cases with uh, with different uh, instances of the string, right? So this is normal switch case per se. Now what happens in switch case is actually uh, figuring out to which instance inside of the case your object is equal to. And then obviously execute that, that part of the thing. Now pattern matching is slightly bigger. Pattern matching in uh, uh, you in the language that has classes can identify more than that. It can identify, uh, for example, if my in, uh, if my instance a class of particular type, and it was created with a particular values passed in the in the construction time. So you writing a pattern that says some meta information. Type that. Now when this type was created, this and this and this was passed, and so on, so on. Uh, why it's an, why it's really popular among uh, functional languages because it's uh, the most popular pattern. Where, for example, you're writing a graph structure and you will have a node empty, node with value. And then when you're writing a traversal logic, because again, in uh, uh, in the functional languages, you usually don't use variable that much. You're trying to write everything expression. You use a pattern matching, like what happens when you're adding a new element. Uh, now you're putting a pattern match, saying if the current element is effectively has a type node with value, you're recursively traversing it. If the current node has type empty node, then you're creating a new one and returning the new one. And here is a way to do it. And 
usually you would you can write this but you would have to have several if with type check and then after that you would have to do unzipping or stuff like opening variables from that object checking them pattern matching effectively combines all this and uh, many languages, um, they exploring this in a different, different ways. For example, some of the language include in pattern matching uh, of lists, where you can say that here is my object, if match pattern of list with two elements, uh, do this case. And inside of the case, because you, you specify the pattern, which is list with two objects, you already can directly use the variables from that list. So it's not only doing the magic and effectively doing unzipping of this object for you on the fly. Oh, wow. That, that, that unzipping thing was like extra surprising. Yeah. And uh, usually you can specify because for pattern matching, you need to specify what has been passed in the construction of the object. So you need to specify type and then you need explicitly specify input uh, variables to the constructor. Now, imagine you have three strings and you want object that were created with the first string uh, equals to uh, sign uh, to character A, second string equals to character B, for third string you don't care. So in, in, in the place of third uh, variable, we're just putting variable name B. And now inside of your case, you can directly use that variable B and actually read what was passed there when the object was created, which is like really nice, uh, nice things. Hmm. That's interesting. And so it sounds like the main benefit, or one of the big benefits you get from this is really when you're trying to write uh, the word functional, uh, I'm forgetting the word, but like a code that doesn't modify the object and you're just trying to like only uh, write pure functions, that's the word. Um, yes, but also it's quite, uh, so the, the, one of the main purposes, if you want to change behavior based on the type of input, input object, so time to time you're using polymorphic, or you're using uh, you extending object and you're overwriting method. So this is a one way, uh, one way. But uh, the reason why I mentioned graph traversal algorithm because in the graph traversal algorithm you might be doing different actions depending on the type of the leaf, but these actions are not method within the leaf itself. So this is the best use case. So when you need to traversal and traversal algorithm is outside of the leaf. So you cannot override the leaf because leaf doesn't have a function that you're doing. So usually if you would be writing this, you will have to, you will end up with uh, X amount of instance of if clauses uh, because in the input you have a basic data structure, which is generic leaf. And then you want to do different action. If this is empty leaf class or leaf with a value class or leaf with three value class, you will be doing different actions. Uh, now, the only way to do is like instance of. If instance of that, now I know, now I can do casting. You cast it to instance uh, leaf with three variables. And only now you can start actually getting these variables from this object. Now, the next if instance of doing seven, uh, another thing. This is... It leads to a lot of problem because you have casting, you can do a lot of bugs there by accident. Uh, so this solve exactly that problem. You finally have pattern matching. It, it will do instance of for you. It will get the variables for you. It will even check if some of the variables equal to what you expect. And you, you're doing your logic there. Hmm. Nice, nice, nice. And like speaking of all the casting and stuff, I hadn't quite realized that there was uh, just how much type checking there was now available in Python, which I was still thinking of as a very dynamic language only. 
And like one of the new features, like over here was as related to just like having more flexibility with types, such as unions and aliases yep. and guards, whatever those are. But uh, I, I, I was not, I hadn't realized there was like all this uh, static type checking system that Python has built in. Oh yeah, yes, uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, when mature developers finally came into Python, <laughs> they look on it, this is a toy. Are you saying to me that you want me to deploy the production code that uh, uh, don't have any type checks and expect what exactly? And yeah, so they introduced type and now it's a... Uh, um, now it's very common, especially if you're developing any APIs, because it's just much better when you uh, clicking Control P or something that has uh, auto drive help function. It checks exact type that is expected from that API that was given to you, and it's still nice uh, when you want. You can still treat it as fully dynamic language, uh, but yes, I uh, using types everywhere now. I will definitely need to like figure out how that works. <laughs> It's really nice because, you know, you're writing private method. Ah, screw it. I don't need types there. It's my method. I will yeah. test it. Then you put public method. Okay, I will write down types. I will test it. All this, all the things. So it allows you to do some flexibility where you're actually lazy enough to, to just, just ah, it's, it's working. Nice, nice. As a side note, I was like recently uh, trying out like writing a server in Django. So like Python mm -hmm. Django, it's like Python's web server framework and I was really surprised like Django has this concept of like a model view template mm -hmm. MVT and I was like really curious and I was like looking at it it's like oh hey what's the difference between this and c-sharp.net's like MVC framework model view controller and I think yeah, Django's model template view is what they call it MTV I think something like that okay or model anyways yeah so it's, it's they've got these two different things and I was wondering, like, okay, hey, what is the what, what what is the difference between all of these? And they looked like and from the initial blog post I saw, they were saying that hey, these are different things. From the like initial few pages of the Django book I was reading, it sounded like like they're calling things like different things. Uh even like what in uh, MVC is normally called the controller. Django view is calling it like Django's calling it the view, and like it's I it seemed like there's something on here. But then as I started reading more and more and more into it, I realized that, wait, these are just the exact same things. Someone just wanted their own label on the objects over there. Because they, they both standardize on the on the model. They both have the same concept of a model. Mm -hmm. With an ORM, like separating the model from the thing that reads the model. Mm -hmm. C Sharp calls the thing that reads the model, the controller. Mm -hmm. Django calls it the view. And then like, confusingly enough, in C-sharp, the view, there's a different thing called a view, which is like where you define all your HTML uh, templating and, and whatnot. And Django has its own thing that creates that view, except they call it a template. And so they've that's the templating system. So Django and C-sharp have like, or dot, .NET, both have these like same, it's pretty much the exact same framework for mm -hmm. writing web services, but they just wanted to give it really different names. So, I have a question to ask. I actually, uh, I used uh, in MVC and templatized logic in my life, I, but I very weaken my understanding. So uh, it would be interesting to uh, to clarify something. For me, 
I always was thinking the difference is the following one. Uh, for MVC, you have model, you have controller that owns the logic, you have view, view that owns effectively the uh, logic to show it. Like, let's, for example, mm -hmm. take uh, XO, where you have a view that's capable of show the header of the game, show the table of the game, show, uh, show a move or re-render -re something. Now, when I started moving to templatization in my web project, for me, that was the effectively the fact that you don't have view at all you have a special controller that capable of take template take model combine and give you row string and that row string is valid html but in this case you no longer have view uh, in a canonical way there is no logic for view because in the classical view for a exo example there would be a method draw header that uh, takes and actually draws you a header in this particular there will be another method that listens to some events and when events come it's actually visualizing the updated model uh and yeah yeah so uh i'm so so the way i the what the stuff that i have seen the very like maybe like you played around with an older version of mv asp like mvc i don't, I don't know but uh the way the way i've seen it work like the view and mm -hmm. uh, ASP.NET MVC, uh, that is basically, it looks very much like you're reading HTML. And like you have, like you can insert different blocks of HTML into the view, which is pretty much exactly how Django templates work. You can say, hey, use this view. Like this is like a wrapper around like embed this code into this other HTML code over there. You can have like for loops and whatnot defined inside the code, but you're you're not like, and and uh, the one thing that I don't know yet if you can if you can or cannot do is like how rich of a Python code can you run within Django templates? Because in C sharp ASP.NET, like you can run pretty rich Python code if, or C sharp code if you wanted to. You normally don't, but you could. Uh, that's like one thing that's I don't know, but that feels like a minor difference. I see, I see, I see. Okay, so. Now, I, I now have good understanding uh, what you mentioned. Now, putting aside uh, how they exactly they implemented, here is at least where, in my mind, the line. If you're writing down the dynamic code, if, if you have server-side rendering in the form that allows you to embed Python or Java or C-sharp logic within your view, to me, it's a view. Because this is a, a programming language embedded logic there that's 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 capable being executed now if you reading template populating template and returning populated template for me this is this is a templatized and if inside of the django template you can write python that will be executed somewhere i would call it mvc um that's i would call it as a view yeah 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 so i, I i'm not sure if i completely got you uh, when you talked about modifying the view, what, what were you referring to, like being able to modify the view? So let me put it this way. Let's imagine you have a, a website that's supposed to uh, that's supposed to show you in the middle of the screen your name. Mm -hmm. So the templatized version for me would be I'm writing HTML 
then in between in the in the middle where name goes i would put a placeholder and another placeholder then uh, i would write a controller that reads that file physical file using sdk that says there is a variable a within that template go and replace it with his uh, this name it will render it and i will return the string but it's not capable to uh, do any dynamic dynamic uh, changes to that template dynamic uh, you, you cannot put a code within that template. It's just a canonical template. But there is a placeholders and uh, things to be. And then you can divide it on different sub placeholders. Like one of the things that I had on the project when I would have a template for li tag, which is effectively mm -hmm. a bullet tag. Yep. And then my controller would read the template. It will generate enough li's and then put it in another template that has a placeholder for all the li's and then will return it. Now, and uh, for me, that would be a template. Uh, and the second way, if I can open the template itself, I can write logic there, right there. And uh, Django dynamically will just do it on the fly for me. Server rendering effectively. When someone calls, it will execute that code right there, which is effectively what .NET used to, used to advocate for. Like you can put this magical thing and it's just writing C-sharp there, right there in the, inside of you. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that that's a interesting distinction. I haven't quite progressed to the point in the Django book to know if that is or isn't possible in Django. You might know better than me if it's not possible to write arbitrary uh, Python code in the Django template. I, I just know that like you can you right now you pass in a model like mm -hmm. a dictionary basically into the template, and then like based on that you can write for loops or whatnot like you were mentioning with the li with the li tag. Oh, but in or controller, just, you're writing this in controller, right? In the, no, this would be in the template. Like the for loops would be in the template. This is where, had, where I'm confused. What do you mean by in the template? Inside of the file with in the, the HTML, same... In the HTML file, mm -hmm. uh, you would have like open curly bracket mm -hmm. and some, some funky syntax and then for uh, foo in bar, uh, close curly bracket. Mm. And then you have like a closing block for the for loop and inside that whatever list item you define uh like that'll get populated with all the different like with, with a different item for every instance of the foo and bar i see so okay so that is still a template so you cannot put their literally python logic there it's not not yet i just don't know if like I'm, i assumed that you'd be able to do it later in the book but maybe that's not possible I hope not, but yeah, maybe yes. So here is why I uh, I I build that distinguish for myself. If you can, so the the key is testing there. The model with the template is easily testable. As soon as you have a .NET model where you can actually create a class, do their uh, .NET logic that have a context that have many variables of the context. Oh man, testing that is fun. <laughs> like testing that is is amazingly fun. I bet, I bet, yeah. The views in .NET, if I remember correctly, there there was not really, I don't remember seeing any good advice on how to test those <laughs> exactly, views. Exactly, yes. And you can put, effectively, you can put your logic, programming logic, in untestable place. That was yes. view, you, that was the, view was. Though, though I would say that just because you can do something that's like a very bad idea, doesn't mean that like you should do something. If you keep that logic out of there, which is like quite doable, you can just pass in the specific models that you want to be able to invoke in your template, then things stay fairly sane. 
Yes, that's why I in templates I even prefer not to use these uh, fancy things that technically allow you because uh, for loop is is a, a lot of template template engine they support the for loops. They assume that when you're calling SDK you will put a list. Even that I trying not to use because like if you have your own for loop outside you can write a wrapper and test it. You can figure out that it return exactly what you expect. And this is in the end what I did. So I literally tested logic that creates allies. Then I logic that creates uh, the whole page uh, if you're using that for you're already hiding a little bit it's not a problem per se because again it's the template agent responsible for that uh, but still it's much 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 more testable interesting i hadn't realized that like how simple it was to just extract the full html from this uh with the values filled in on these templates i hadn't got to the chapter on testing yet so that's why I see. Anyway, that's uh, that's amazing. Dive deep into Django. Sorry, why why you even start diving into Django? <laughs> we probably well, well, this started from like these two very different names for these ah. concepts, which seem like they're still doing like mostly the same thing. There's like a slight difference that you you're pointing out, which is that in the Django templates you cannot run arbitrary uh, Python code, while in the ASP.NET MVC templates you can, even though it may be a bad idea at times. Uh, and like you would keep that arbitrary code to a minimum, uh, ideally, but you're still kind of like, if after you account for those two differences, you're still left with like two systems, which are very, very similar to each other, which have completely different naming conventions. And this is really a rant about like how they had two different naming conventions for like, what's very much the same thing or very similar things. Yes, uh, though there is a, a huge difference from the perspective that one is effectively simple templatized engine and other one is effectively server-side rendering, dynamic server-side rendering, which allows you to do a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of stuff on the simple simple age. Uh, yeah, it's actually functionality-wise, uh, they provide completely different reach of abilities. One effectively allows you to have a uh, to have a context right there in the view. I don't know. Uh, actually, by the way, I think it's this practice overall that .NET and who else? There was, oh, of course, Java EE and applets uh, where you can write uh, Java logic directly there in the view. That was exactly the same. And looks like this eventually died. Uh, I mean, probably .NET also no one doing the exactly same these days. But yes, in Java, it's eventually died. Ah, so that's what Java applets were. Uh, it's part of it, yes. There was there was there, there was an ability to create your view, and inside of you, you can actually point exactly the same thing. You can write there very complex logic, and um, yeah, it was an interesting concept. So I I like how you kind of like um, in your mind, these two services like frameworks seem like very very different frameworks to you because of how they're implemented under the hood in a way which is like not necessarily visible to users early on, uh, but like it's it's the internals that are showing, yeah, these are two completely different systems. They deserve very different names. Yeah, and I think you would agree the system with template, we can, you- I might agree I'm... with you once I have more context. <laughs> 
yeah, well, yes, you might agree with me when you have more context that you or I can easily take and write templatized engine within uh, engine within the evening. Like if we have a web server, we can easily write that. And that's why I prefer it because the simplicity of it. I can easily, if I don't like something in the templatized engine, I can lead, uh, quickly write my own within an evening and we'll have this additional feature. Go and figure out how to extend .NET <laughs> views if you don't like something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's an interesting call out. <laughs> yeah, that was the problem with Java EE. Like, you are locked in in the particular system of thinking. Like, they have particular dialect, uh, they have particular things, but suddenly you're realizing, yeah, Java, but not exactly Java. You have this this particular thing doesn't work, that particular thing doesn't work, or if you will call, if throw exception here, everything will die, and like, you know, things like that. And from that very moment, you're realizing that you're learning tons of an, uh, unnecessary stuff. Like if you would write on something way more simpler and understandable, it will be simpler, more testable, more understandable, and would not require senior uh, Java EE developer just to understand how this shit works together. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I, I wonder if this like templating, uh, template name was perhaps like a pre-existing standard before Django came around, which is because it's such an easy thing to write, people may have been writing it already. And then Django just kind of like wrapped it around its own framework and wrapped a templating engine around its own framework. And uh, that may have been where that name came from. Probably. I definitely was writing similar things when I didn't know that it was uh, was template and template agents. I do still remember when I have HTML where it was like six stars. And then I would write a logic that reads file and has string replaced six stars with something that I needed. And, and yeah, I haven't realized quite yet that that was it. And uh, probably Django already existed at that point, but I was young, naive, and I didn't know anything. Uh, so yes, I had to write. So I, I'm pretty sure at some point in life, you also wrote something like that. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I remember like the first time I was creating an HTML website and just how much copy pasting I was doing to make that work. <laughs> if, if I had kept writing HTML websites, I probably would have ended up doing something like this, but I, I moved away from HTML for a long time after that. Ah, I see, I see, I see. Uh, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. All right, I think, I think uh, it's a lot of fun Python talk. Is there no. anything else? Like literally, is it just pattern matching and error logs? <laughs> That's it? <laughs> Well, they have type unions and aliases so that they support. Uh, that's an interesting new format. Like, I'm surprised they didn't support aliases if they had typing before. Or maybe they've done something funky with aliases. And you can now have types that are like of one type or the other type, like a float or an int, can be unions. Mm. And you can fill a list with both ints and floats. I see, I see, I see. Uh, you know, this feels that Python becomes a next pearl. Like I have this feeling that Python moving that way, where you know there that is would be nice, nice. <laughs> what? <laughs> In certain ways. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, which ways is that? <laughs> pearl was so so such a pleasure to code and read, uh, unless you're reading like six months later. Okay, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me do now this. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, 
I was I was really really proud of the first time like I learned Perl. Uh, this is like I was an intern. This is like back in my college days. I was an intern at some company, uh-huh. and my boss kind of came up to me, and he was like, "said Hey Zayn, I have a project for you," and he was kind of almost apologetic when he was giving me this project. <laughs> of course, <laughs> he's like, "Hey Zayn, look, we have like all of our all the different teams. We have to start localizing our uh, driver files." Uh, we've like all these hard-coded English strings. We need to replace all these strings with a function call, and we've got like a few hundred files that this needs to be done with, or like thousands of lines of code. Uh, can you please do this? This is like uh, I know it's going to be tedious, but hey, you're an intern. He didn't say that last line, but like I could infer. Okay, okay. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, okay, um, I, I can do this by hand. This sounds like super painful. It's going to take me like three or four days probably to do all of this and I'm going to fall asleep 50 times <laughs> and no one will ever find the bugs I leave behind because it will just be impossible. Then I just recently heard of this language called Python. I didn't know much about it, but all I knew was that it was supposed to be good for parsing text files and dealing with text files. It was like, okay, hey, you know what? Maybe instead of doing all this by hand, I'll just spend a day learning Python get like the basics of it and then the next day i spent like writing the script and testing it and then at the end of the second day i was like okay hey boss all done <laughs> i think it works wait and how that was it how pearl fits in i thought the story will oh, be oh sorry sorry i meant i meant pearl not oh my god pearl, so pearl, I, pearl. i was so excited i thought this oh, no. is a happy end story i, I completely ruined the story <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i heard of this language called pearl which is really good for parsing text files it had this weird concept of what is called regular expressions which i was like had no idea what these regular expressions were and so with this magic of pearl and regular expressions like i spent a day learning about it spent a day implementing the code handling all the different like handling different error cases after error cases and like or like how the code was formatted and finally at the end it worked and it was done in two days and Man. i didn't fall asleep at all Uh, of course you, you pearl is not the language with which you can fall asleep uh i no, uh, now yeah. now that you mention it like uh-huh. after i was done and like i told my boss hey i wrote this script uh-huh. that does stuff he was like super impressed he told i think it was like his boss and they're all like really happy like oh hey look our intern he wrote a script that does this like painful driver conversion and he took me to another team who was also working on this driver conversion and he said hey guys this kid he wrote this script you might want to use this stuff and like okay yeah 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 cool thanks and then i never heard back from them again <laughs> I, i don't know if they just like gave up the hands and like uh when they saw the python like the, the pearl code or like they're just like ah oh, this is impossible or, or what but i never heard back from them after that day i, I imagine this this you, you opening the door where this team sits you know there is one guy that shot himself like another guy <laughs> yeah. that hanged himself and the third one with a really red eye still trying to figure out what this error means yeah <laughs> and like try, trying to understand this intern's first python script or pearl script ever <laughs> yes yes by the way i must must give to you my friend you are brave enough to publicly admit you know pearl <laughs> you know that now someone might actually ask you to write pearl because that's that's why people don't put it on cv <laughs> I, i don't mind writing pearl as long as i don't have to read someone else's pearl 
Oh yeah, but write Perl usually means you're first giving a Perl project and you need to put the method, new method somewhere there. And oh man, that's 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 a fun, fun. Yeah, place. it's it's ex dealing with existing Perl scripts that gets very hairy. Though as I Microsoft, mm -hmm. there was a I guess people also really liked Perl over there. There was someone who was like older, like senior to me who really liked Perl scripts over there. Because mm -hmm. they had a really, really cool pattern that they would use for Perl scripts which I don't even remember anymore. I need to figure this out again. But it was a way to disguise a Perl script mm -hmm. so that it looked like a bash file. And the way this would work is that like the top 10-ish or so lines, like you, you would have a Perl script basically. It would have like whole all Perl written inside there. Okay. Except its extension would be .bat, which is like the batch script or whatever the batch script equivalent is in uh, Windows, uh -huh. .sh, I forget what it is, but let's say .bat. And uh, the very first few lines of the script would actually be like bash, like batch script, like command line lines. And it would basically do like a thing saying, hey, take this file, uh -huh. call Perl on the same file and like it would treat the first few lines like and it would call Perl on that batch script file like first call it on, on itself mm -hmm. and it would basically have like the file was formatted in such a way that the all the code lines that were about batch scripts would be treated by the Perl compiler as comments mm -hmm. and it would just go straight down and start executing the Perl script yeah so wait a second so, so why what's the difference if you even linux putting uh, interpreter python and make a file executable and writing python it it saves it saves you one line because you don't have to write well in, in window like you don't have to write in windows at least you don't have to write like a perl space script name and like execute the script you just write the script name in one word and there it starts executing immediately wait a second so let me write in chat so in linux you the first line would be because i make sure that would be oh yeah, yeah. Be I, this. I know what you're i think and, you realize what you're talking about and like that's it so, so this this is effectively a much longer multi-line hack that does a similar thing under the hood okay so it's worse and it's worse than that. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, it's, I, I was not like saying showing as a golden standard I see, I see i see but when you're stuck with dealing with a different operating system an operating system which only knows how to like run files based on their file extension and oh. may not necessarily know how to run a file which is like a Perl file and not everyone may have had Perl like set to run all the time on their dev boxes uh, this is like a workaround for dealing with the operating system limitations. Yeah, so this is not about Perl at all, because yes, in Linux you also can run exactly same, uh, the same command slash bin slash Perl. And okay, okay, okay. To be fair, when you started, I thought you were speaking about Plumboom, um, about Plumboom or similar thing on the Perl, which is effectively library for writing uh, uh, very in very native way shell commands on Python, which is just amazing. Uh, it's uh, just just look on the examples like basics or piping. I thought when you started, I was sure that you you leading to something like this, which is like Perl uh, Perly way to write shell. Because I I, I have several scripts that I ran, wrote in Plumboom on Python just because. Oh wow, that's like why. Would you, this is for people who really, really want their shell commands in Perl? Yeah. So this is. But a, why? Why would you want to do this? 
Oh, because if you have a comp, I actually rewrote several complex shell script on that. Because if you need a shell script and you need it to be complex, like a variable, you have uh, if, you have force, it's much more simple to do that. Like the only problem that it requires plumboom, so you cannot treat it as universal shell that will work everywhere. Uh, uh, so yes, that's the problem. But apart from that, if that is a shell script for your local machine, oh yeah, it's so much simpler, so much better than trying to go on the go on the uh, uh, Stack Overflow and keep reading y minus e with this particular string did not return true and both strings are actually equal and spending tons of the hours rem reminding yourself that you need to write if in bash in a different way. Interesting. And then like figuring out how, how do we get the console output piped into this other very yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, in Python, it's Python. So you can write there a lot of stuff and it will be much simpler. Obviously, it's golden when it works. When it does not, sure, you have to, to, to go back to, to, to bash. Interesting, interesting. As, as a side note, I, I will have another confession to make. This one is about Python and real real Python this time. For the longest time, like I had no idea how to properly import files, how, how like the Python imports worked. Because Python has such like so many different ways the imports end up looking. You can say import blah mm -hmm. from blah, import blah. From like from this thing, import something as this. Mm -hmm. Or from this place, import star. Uh it's like it, it really was not clear to me what the imports were versus like doing a from something importing. Uh, so part part of like using, going through the Django playbook or textbook actually made it clear to me, oh, this is how Python does imports. If I wanted to have a Python script, here's how I'm not forced to be put everything all in like one giant file or like in the same directory. Here's how I can use subdirectories with Python imports. I had tried using so, like putting some Python code in one folder and some Python code in a subfolder and it wasn't working properly. And then I learned, oh, here's why I cannot put Python code and use it from a parent folder. I can't import from a parent folder. Wait, 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 wait. wait, wait, wait. I think I can't. Uh, yeah, you, you should be able, why not? Uh, or I maybe- have, I, have, I actually haven't tried that one, but uh, oh, since I learned this other stuff, but I thought you can't like from up, up, like going up a folder. Or is there a syntax for that? So it's actually depends on, on the different things. So if your package, so if you're running in, in the way that uh, you are on the higher level folder, yes, there is actually package dot dot or the package dot uh, that you can actually use to go up the folder or say from current folder something, uh, which is a valid uh, syntax. So it depends. Uh, if you're properly building a package, like literally package, import name of your package dot subfolder dot subfolder will always work because it know from where to show, to search however you can even overcome this with dot dot like ah dot dot something and it actually will go folder up and then search but but it sounds like and correct me if i'm wrong you still have to effectively be running python from the folder that is parent to everything else so you can't like run python from the subfolder and have expect the reference to go up a folder, then to a sister folder. Yes, you. Let me put it this way: for writing a package, you need to run it the proper way. Yes, if that's that, <laughs> <laughs> that like the same would be in Java. You cannot import packages from the upper folder if you're trying to compile and run in this folder because it neither will compile anything from external world nor it will see it after fact, uh, post factum. Sorry. Yeah, it, it doesn't like 
dynamically pull in references, like a relative folder paths from one folder to another folder. Yeah, this is because you ne you you always supposed to have a full qualified pass. You never supposed to have a relative reference. So the dot dot or dot actually highly discouraged. And this means that you always need to start from the root. So it knows about everything within your root folder. Yeah, there there are probably quite a few uh, rewrites that had to happen or like refactoring that had to happen back in Microsoft, which would have been avoided if uh, <laughs> you didn't have to, you, if, if relative paths were banned. There's probably a lot of other problems that would have happened if relative paths were banned. I, I don't think it's banned in Python. I'm pretty sure dot dot still works, but it's definitely would be considering a, a discouraged practice per se. Okay, interesting. I, I like when, when I'm doing some of these de uh, debugging investigations or like trying to do certain things, I always have to like, it's a trade-off between like, how much time do I spend continuing to make the way I would like to make things work, work that way versus just like, all right, you know what? This is a side project. Let me just like make this work somehow and not spend another 20 minutes just like figuring out how to put stuff in the folder I would like it to put in. Just put it all in the same folder, be done with it. You know, um... Here is what with uh, more and more progressive I realizing the most important quality of the senior developer. Um, so we all know how to do things because you can take a book and read about it. But what is important to know what not to do. That's exactly so. <laughs> you, what, you, what you're doing, you know, is safe and you precisely know what not to do, even in the simple pet project. And yes, so there are a lot of cut corner, but this is where senior developers actually shy. The senior developer knows where to cut corner and what not to do under any circumstances. Like to call Perl from Python that will call another Python from, from that thing, <laughs> even, even if it's to save you half an hour. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Especially like uh, as your time becomes more and more precious, if you're going to ever finish your side projects, you really need to be very careful with what you spend those valuable minutes on. Yep, 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 yep. True. And which which is actually a pretty good transition point into uh, one of the ar another articles for today. Uh, this one mm -hmm. was about design patterns for hacking together prototypes. Ooh. And some of these like design patterns over here are like this guy has like a, it's a blog he has like two or three different design patterns and some of these like when you look at them it really seems horrifying from a design point of view you're like this is one of the absolute worst things that you could do it's gonna like completely break stuff as you're doing it but there's like a mindset that's required for this kind of stuff, which is in the title. It's a prototype. Mm -hmm. You're not planning to make this your final work. You're doing a proof of concept. And so because you know this is a prototype, you cut all the corners that you can. You take things as like the easy way out as much as possible so that you can quickly get to the point where uh, your stuff is done before you reach the, reach the point where you're like, okay, I have to maintain this and like, Fixing these random bugs caused by my hacky design patterns is uh, taking me more time now than like actually doing things the right way. And uh, what, what one example of uh, 
this kind of a design pattern that mm -hmm. uh, this person has is what he calls an object of dictionary or like a, a, an object dictionary. Mm -hmm. And basically like instead of having uh, methods, like so, so you're having like different things, the data that you might want to fetch in your project and you're creating like different objects and you're taking con adding constructors and accessors to this object uh, like for getting all the data. What this guy does is he just creates a bunch of dictionaries. And like in the dictionaries, he'll say, okay, hey, I want this thing. And like, he's just basically like calling, loading everything via a dictionary, via a global global dictionary, maybe mm -hmm. multiple global, global dictionaries for different contexts, but everything is just stuck in a global dictionary, uh, which is slow and painful uh, if you're having to maintain this. But if you're just trying to get something out the door real quick, and this might be a useful tool to keep in mind in your tool belt. Doesn't mean you have to always use this, <laughs> but it's to keep in mind that hey, this is something that might make sense in your in your situation. You know, uh, I so love this pattern. I so love this mindset, and uh, <clears throat> it's all aligned with UDP. So I can exactly tell the biggest problem with this pattern because you know this. Uh, you will write something like that, this something will be successful, you will rewrite it finally, and then will be some stuff senior solution main architect that will look in that and say, no, 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 you should have wrote it correctly from the first try. Never ever do this. You wasted two years rewriting it. Like, I don't want to see it again while I will fire you or something among those lines. <laughs> and uh, But yes, yes, uh, in I'm pretty sure uh, in the big companies, half of the attempt to use it that end up being successful enough to be rewritten will be viewed by that angle. And I hate our industry for that because, you know, everything seems so obvious in retrospect. So everyone uh, looking at a successful product, asking the question, why not just to build proper way this product without realization that if you do proper way, you will end up like two years in a different direction and you will have to write it anyway again. Uh, so yes, kudos to the guy, but uh, out of curiosity, he yeah. probably do not work in a big company. Oh no, he, he's he's a <laughs> he's in academia. Ah, okay, okay, okay. So <laughs> he he can really do whatever he wants. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, and and like kind of adding on to what you were saying earlier about just like going the hacky route versus doing things the right way. There's like a lot of the complexity is just figuring out what is the right way. Yep. Uh, like. It's the hacky part that like lets you learn about. Oh, hey, here are all here's different corner cases that I have to deal with. Here's what the users want, and like, oh, you know what? Given like this new requirement, the ideal right way might be completely different from what you would have originally tried to implement as a right way, and you would have needed a needed a rewrite anyways because of that. But because you're starting off with this hacky approach, you're not really worrying about rewrites. Uh, you're just trying to make sure your productivity is as high as possible and getting stuff working from a user perspective, uh, that's, you're learning a lot. And there's a downside, like also with the complexity aspect is that once a project is done, the hindsight bias kicks in or not hindsight bias, but like, I don't know what the bias is called. Yeah. Hindsight. Like, yes. Hindsight. Yeah. Where like you, you've done everything. And everything seems like it's so simple and so obvious because now you already have the answers. And I'm pretty sure the PM will tell you, well, I already knew that that was my slide number five. You see it here in the presentation. It's already was showing exactly these. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
Uh, and, and and heck, to be like honest, like sometimes I will look at my own stuff, like I've done over the past three weeks, for example, and I'd say, why did that take me so long? It looks so simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, what I started doing to like combat this bias of my own self was like, I, I tried to write down at the, every single day what I was doing. And uh, at the end of the three days, like three weeks, I'd go back and think, hey, why, why was this taking me so long? And then I look at what I was doing every single day. I was like, oh yeah, there was this problem I ran into. Oh, there was this problem I ran into. Oh, I had to solve this thing. Yes, the solution may have been like one line, but figuring out that one line <laughs> took a long time to figure that out. So, you know, I trying to build this mental trap for uh, for people to actually accept this way of thinking, uh, which occasionally work, occasionally. That's, so I'm going to share it because sometimes <laughs> it's actually worked. So you put usually uh, in front of the uh, someone with whom you're discussing who actually advocates to do right uh, from, the, from the beginning, uh, two things. Uh, first, you are asking if uh, hockey way would be way that prioritizes knowledge. So first acknowledge that with the person whom you're discussing, that doing hockey quick way will uh, will uh, increase your knowledge while, yes, decrease the time to get to the right things. After that, ask the person, are you sure that what you want us to be doing actually will be successful? And if you're willing to bet your career on that, I would be willing to bet my time on that as well. Then usually answer, no, 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 we actually, this is just a hypothesis. Then let's go back to the first question. Out of these two parts, which we already agree will, will uh, deliver more knowledge in the shortest part of time. And usually that's like at this point, there is no way for them to say that we still need to do the right way. But again, that's not all works all the time because obviously this dialogue is much longer than I just tried to make it look like <laughs> and uh, much more complex, but occasionally it works. Yeah. And, and I guess to, to be uh, fully fair to everyone, like we, we should call out the one failure mode, which probably a lot of people think of when they think of like, hey, start off with a hacky prototype and then build it properly later on is uh, oftentimes like, or th there's all these horror stories of hacky prototypes actually making their way into production. <laughs> and that's being like the permanent state of affairs. And... I think it's like just worth calling out that like in certain circumstances, at least with like certain levels of hacks, if the hacky prototype made it into production, then maybe it was just good enough for the needs of that particular situation. Like if it's your side project and you haven't been able to prioritize like fixing the code to make it like all nice and neat, maybe it's because it just wasn't that important. Like it was actually doing the job the way it was. And you got to do it faster than you would have been otherwise. You know, uh, there is, we probably should be finishing. We're actually at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> but I want to add one interesting replica. Uh, I've seen a lot among the young people who just joining the industry actually incorrect, incorrect understanding of this principle. And um, I want also to clarify what we mean with Dane here about simple hockey way does not necessarily mean that. Uh, uh, this is so sorry I'm trying to quickly rephrase it in my hand there are two types of simple one simple and hacky solution because this is the simplest and hacky ways to do so two simple and hacky solution because you are not familiar with the topic at hand and this is the only way to do so 
and uh, you know like you can fix null pointer by by figuring out that oh we have null pointer somewhere is someone passing their h in our form equals 15 so you can say if equal 15 and return nothing it will be no null pointer at least <laughs> this is simple it's good yes it's simple hacky way so we actually usually don't mean that because people tend to I mean, misunderstood, uh, misunderstanding this principle. What we mean is that you still need to be good at what you're doing. And you need to know how to cut corners. But it doesn't mean that you don't know anything and suddenly you do a really horrible things just because this is the only way how you know things should be done. No. Yeah, per perhaps like a more a way to generalize that rule or a different way to generalize that rule could be to say, Hacky solutions, there's, there's like different kinds of hacky solutions. Some hacky solutions, which will like, are just, you don't know what, the, the, you know that they're going to be reliable. They're going to keep doing this stuff, working the way they are for like, for a very long time. Then there's another category of hacky solutions where it works for now. It might not work tomorrow. And then it might work again the day after tomorrow. But uh, it, it at least it works for now. On my computer. <laughs> On my computer. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And and that's that's the kind of like situation where you probably are not making the right trade off if you're exactly. going to that situation. Yes, or you yes, need to be yes. like going in with your eyes wide open when you're making that kind of a trade off, and you're like really need to know like, hey, this code is only going to be around for like another week, and then it's gone. Sure. Yes, it's all about trade off, and yet again, this is coming down to seniors should know what not to do ever. Anyway, my right. friend, I do want to ask us to end the uh, yes, yes, here. Yes, we, we are getting quite late. Yes. All right. Well, have this. This was fun. It was a good, good comeback episode after a long time. We had some really great discussions this time. So uh, we'll. I hope we hope uh, you listeners you enjoy this as well. And, uh, if not, you st still please come back even if you. <laughs> if you I mean, listen to the end of the podcast anyway, so like I presumably you did. <laughs> yes, even if you have the not ones who didn't like it, it never reached the end. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Zane, and talk to you next week. All right, see you next week. See you, folks, or next month. We'll figure or it out. Next month, yes, yes, yes. <laughs>